From Booksmart Studios, this is Banished. I'm Mike Volo, filling in for Amna Khalid. Putin has somehow lost contact with, with reality. Mm. He's thinking in categories of being a historic person, of being some kind of Napoleon uh, with a historic mission. And by the way, you're correct to mention not only Napoleon. Just like you said, Napoleon. You know what Napoleon said, we've all heard this, the moral is to the physical in battle as three to one. In her New York Times column last month, Maureen Dowd wrote of Vladimir Putin's Napoleonic megalomania. More recently, she said, quote, Putin has always had a Napoleon complex, puffing out his bare chest on horseback, fishing shirtless in Siberia, winning staged judo and hockey displays. We have this sense that Napoleon was a man of great complexity and contradiction, at times a tyrant, but also magnanimous, a brilliant military leader who nevertheless suffered one of history's most ignominious defeats. A man short of stature, we might say, who was perhaps overcompensating. He was building an empire to rival that of the Romans. And why exactly? And why do we still talk about him so much? Napoleon has been dead for more than 200 years, but his name is invoked sometimes as if he rose to power in the 1990s, not the 1790s. So I asked two historians, Peter Hicks and Rafe Blaufarb, to tell the story of how, where, and why Napoleon I, Emperor of France, came to be banished. Peter Hicks is International Affairs Manager at the Fondation Napoleon in Paris, although he's from Britain, and Rafe Blaufarb is Director of the Institute on Napoleon and the French Revolution at Florida State University. A few things to keep in mind if you don't have much background on Napoleon. First, he grew up on the island of Corsica. His native languages were, in fact, Corsican and Italian. But as a young adult, he would align himself politically with the ideals of the French Revolution, which broke out when he was just still a teenager. And as a soldier in his 20s, fighting on the side of Liberté, Napoleon proved himself to be decisive and courageous and, above all, ambitious. The first voice you'll hear is that of historian Peter Hicks, he has a British accent. Rafe Blaufarb is American. Napoleon, up until the early 1790s, is in favor of Corsican independence and Corsicanness, you know, right, right down there. Come the French Revolution, France owns Corsica. Corsica is France. Corsica still is France. I mean, we have trouble with this in the English language world, understanding that Corsica is France. So Napoleon has two identities. He's Corsican, violently Corsican, up to the French Revolution, when he becomes French. And thereafter, he is French. Yes, he speaks Italian with a strong Corsican accent, and his French isn't great, and he has a curious turn of phrase and a funny pronunciation, but he's French. From 1792 to 1814, France was at war with basically all of the other countries of Europe. All of those countries were monarchies. 
the ideological grounds for the war, at least from the point of view of these monarchies, was that France had violated international law and basic moral norms by getting rid of their legitimate monarch, Louis XVI, not just deposing him, but actually executing him and his queen, and that the war against first revolutionary and then Napoleonic France was in some sense an ideological war aimed to punish or correct this violation of the basic rights of legitimate monarchs not to be (laughs) dethroned and beheaded. So far, so good. But the problem is that Napoleon, through his military victories, managed to get these various crowned heads of Europe, as well as the Pope, to recognize him as a legitimate monarch in his own right. But having become a legitimate monarch in 1804, when he was proclaimed emperor, you know, with the Pope and the coronation and all of that, he didn't settle down and he remained at war with all of these European monarchies and continued to destabilize the European traditional conservative political order. So the problem was this in 1814, when Napoleon was first defeated. The Allies didn't know what to do with him. On the one hand, they saw him as this incredibly dangerous force, this force of somehow incarnated revolution and threatened the very basis of their own legitimacy. But on the other hand, they had signed treaties with him. In the case of the Emperor of Austria, they had married their family members to him and actually other monarchs married family members to Napoleon's brothers and sisters. It was a little hard to overlook the fact that Napoleon was a legitimate monarch and you couldn't just overthrow him. You couldn't just throw him in a jail and above all, you couldn't execute him for his crime. So the problem is what do you do with a legitimate monarch who is out of control, renegade, too much trouble for Europe? And the answer was allowing Napoleon to remain a monarch, but we're going to give him a little teeny tiny kingdom that is so small that he couldn't possibly do any damage as ruler of that kingdom. And the little kingdom they chose is Elba. Elba is off the coast of Tuscany. It's actually part of Tuscany today, which is a region in Italy. It's not very far from Corsica, sort of in the shape of a dolphin, more or less. It's been known since antiquity. It was famous in antiquity, famous for its ironworks. You could supposedly see the furnaces working at night from the Italian mainland. So it's not very far. It is a very, very tiny island off the Italian coast, not too far from Napoleon's birthplace of Corsica. That's where he was installed as king of his own little domain in 1814. He is made sovereign of the island of Elba. It's not really exile. It is exile, but it's not really exile. This being made sovereign of I suppose, the kingdom of Elba is granted to him by Alexander I, the Russian Tsar, who is playing the role of the magnanimous leader who is being magnanimous in the defeat of his enemy. He's doing a Napoleon. Napoleon liked to present himself as Trajan, the great magnanimous Roman emperor. Alexander wants to show his magnanimity by not precisely 
exiling Napoleon, but making him sovereign of, yes, tiny little place compared to the great French Empire. The key thing is that Napoleon is very close to Italy. Now, Italy is at this point not the Italy we think of. Italy is a patchwork of different kind of states, varying different policies. The wealthiest part of Italy is the northern part, which is under the control of Austria. So Italy in the early 19th century is basically Austria, apart from the south, which is the Pope and Naples. Putting Napoleon on Elba is putting somebody who's political dynamite next to Austria. Now, Russia and Austria don't get on. So it's a kind of savvy move on the part of the Tsar. What he does is he shows himself magnanimous, doesn't crush Napoleon, sets him up for a return, because everyone thinks, well, he's probably going to return. But they all think he's going to return and liberate Italy, unify Italy, create this Italy. And that will piss off the Austrians. And so that's kind of cool for Alexander. That works in his favour. Napoleon was not content with being king of a tiny little island with maybe a few hundred or a few thousand residents. Instead, he wanted to return to his old ways, you know, the glory, the grandeur, the outsized scale of everything he had done before. He wasn't content to be a tiny little garden variety king. Well, people say he escapes from Elba. That implies exile. That implies he's being guarded by troops. He leaves Elba. Yeah, there's a British kind of observer, a man called Campbell, military man, who is stationed on Elba to keep an eye. It's just him. So Campbell famously goes to the mainland, goes to Italy, Tuscany, to see his mistress. And on that weekend, Napoleon says, right, we're off. Yeah, he goes and invades France. Anybody with a little bit of real politique would have said, OK, maybe Italy, maybe but France, and with only 600 men. And it is the most staggering event of the 19th century. It has to be the most staggering event of the 19th century. No one can believe it. (laughs) It just blows everybody's mind. They're going like, what? And then not only is the leaving of Elba, there's this extraordinary moment on the field in front of Grenoble, when a couple of divisions of royal troops face him down on this field in Lafray, outside Grenoble. And it feels like it's out of a film. He walks up to them and opens his coat and says, here we are. Here I am, your emperor, shoot me. And they don't. The coffee cups are still warm in the Tuileries. <laughs> Louis XVIII leaves in the morning. Napoleon wanders in in the afternoon. He returns illegally to France and takes the place of the French monarch, Louis XVIII, who had returned in the wake of the Allies' military victory. And so Napoleon makes himself emperor of the French once again in 1815. Now, of course, we know how this all ended after 100 days in the Battle of Waterloo. And Napoleon finds himself once again an ex-emperor wondering what to do. But his problem was not nearly as serious as that of the Allies, who were like, okay, What do we do with him now? Because he's a legitimate monarch. Still, that hasn't changed. We don't like it. We hold our noses, but he's a legitimate monarch. But he has shown that 
he is really, really too dangerous. We can't give him another kingdom. We've seen what happens when he's left on his own. This man has to be confined, restrained, controlled, but we can't really imprison him for being a legitimate monarch because that's what we've been at war for the past 25 years over. So the question is what to do with him. He then is allowed to leave Paris, is vaguely pursued by the police. The Prussians are out for him. He's like trying to get to the US, probably, possibly. And he hangs out in Rochefort and there are boats prepared to go to the US. But in the end, he thinks, hmm, if I'm trying to escape, escape from what? The war is over. The battles are finished. The abdication has taken place. So what is he? Nobody knew quite what to do with Napoleon at this point, including Napoleon, who, as you heard, flirted with the idea of coming to America. And it's hard to imagine how that would have played out. We'll get back to what might have happened and what did happen in just a minute. But first, I want to urge you to check out our limited series called Unprecedented about the First Amendment. This is unlike any legal show you've heard. My colleague Matthew Schwartz and I tracked down people who were directly involved in some of the most significant and fascinating free speech cases of the last 50 years. And we asked questions like, do you have the right to be mean? I mean, it's everything disrespectful you can possibly have. That his first sexual experience was with his mother and that they were both drunk and in an outhouse. The only time the First Amendment really matters is when your speech is the dissenting, unpopular voice. Who needs the First Amendment for God Bless America? You can find episodes of Unprecedented at booksmartstudios.org. There are four of them so far. Give a listen and let us know what you think. Let's get back to Napoleon, who, as you heard Peter Hicks say, is hanging out in Rochefort, where there are boats ready to take him to the United States. Here is historian Rafe Blaufarb to start us off with the second half. For Napoleon's part, his brother wanted him to board a ship incognito and flee to America, where the United States Republic would not hand him over to vengeful monarchies. His brother Joseph says, come on, Napoleon, we can do it. I've got tickets. We just sort of pretend we're you know, ordinary businessmen on a business trip and we'll get home scot-free to America. But Napoleon realized that this would be a terrible blow to his historical reputation. He had accumulated all this glory. If he ends it all by fleeing ignominiously, (laughs) disguised as some like middle-class burger, that would ruin everything he had worked to achieve. So Napoleon decided to do something else. He's kind of in this sort of weird meta land. So he decides his best course of action is to hand himself over to the British. What Napoleon actually wanted to do, though, was to turn himself over to the British authorities and demand a trial. Napoleon knew that in Great Britain, one had the right to a trial if detained. You couldn't be detained indefinitely. That's habeas corpus, a great British... (laughs) and now American uh, legal principle. He knew all about habeas corpus. He also knew about the jury system and realized that if he did get his trial, he would be able to defend himself. 
he would have a platform to justify himself, possibly trundling out the kinds of arguments that the other monarchs of Europe wouldn't want to hear, such as he was a legitimate monarch and just conducting warfare the way they had for many centuries. So he does turn himself over to a British warship, which conveys him to England. The commander of that British warship, though, very, very astutely and wisely decided not to let Napoleon off the ship and disembark onto English soil. The captain instead sent a runner to London and asked for instructions about what to do with this very singular captive. The British cabinet realized that if Napoleon disembarked, he would in fact have all of the rights to a jury trial as he had expected to have. And consequently, they decide that this must not happen. Napoleon must never set foot on English soil. Who knows what would happen? This man was smart and unpredictable. Better not let him have that opportunity. There's a famous debate. Is he a prisoner of war? And Napoleon maintains he isn't. And the British maintain he is. There's one of the governors who's a little bit not very flexible, mentally speaking, says, we're going to call him General Bonaparte. Napoleon says, well, yeah, well, he stopped existing in 1799, so who am I if General Bonaparte no longer exists? I'm Napoleon, the first emperor of France. He says at some point, maybe I should call myself Mr. N. What the British cabinet decides is to pack him off to a tiny British-possessed island in the middle of the South Atlantic, an island called St. Helena, It is a tiny speck of land. They have a wonderful expression in Italian which says Upper Wales Bottom, which I think describes it perfectly. It is about a thousand miles from any continent. It is literally surrounded on all sides by a thousand miles of incredibly stormy, inhospitable Atlantic Ocean. There are several different microclimates on the island. Some bits of it resemble the English Combe County. Some bits of it resemble Switzerland. Other bits resemble the moon. Very exposed to the wind, very exposed to the ocean. This is a blasted kind of heath, if you will. Very, very muggy in the wintertime. Sometimes you get scotch mist that hangs over the house for weeks. And then in the summertime, the sun hits very hard. It's damp, lots of rats, termites. They decide to just take him there and de facto imprison him there, hold him there indefinitely, without a trial, without charging him with anything, but not allowing him to go free. This, in my opinion, is the first Guantanamo, where a country that believes in the rule of law, that believes in the rights of the accused, that believes in habeas corpus, that believes in jury trial, can detain someone indefinitely without granting them any of those rights and without least in theory, violating its own principles. This is an extraterritorial zone in which the rules of British justice do not apply. And the security measures are extreme. They have boats that are circumnavigating the island 24-7, literally 24-7. There are, I think, 3,000 soldiers, two whole battalions, which are stationed at different places. So the security is insane at Longwood. From sunset, which in the Southern Hemisphere happens immediately about 5.30, a cordon of soldiers, a metre apart and a metre from the house, encircled the house. 
This happens every night. It's insane. Now, usually when you lose, you don't get to write the story of your reign, but luckily Napoleon has a six-year research fellowship at Longwood House. He then manages to publish and write all of the stories of his reign. He dictated them to all of the people who were with him. They spent day after day after day taking dictation from Napoleon, and he would do it like he would do it when he was in power. So he'd dictate, they would copy it out, they would bring it back, they'd reread it, he'd rejig it, and then they'd write it out again, and then they'd reread it again, and then he'd rejig it again. And this went on day after day, year after year. In addition to the political publications as well, which are designed to keep his name in public view in Britain, not in France. He's persona non grata in France. There's no point in publishing in France. He only publishes in London, in English, so everything has to be translated, smuggled off the island, and then published by liberals in London, political texts which are saying, I'm being badly treated, I have to be brought back to Europe. The question of why Napoleon kept fighting wars after he had already secured his imperial crown and had been recognized by the other countries of Europe and had achieved peace temporarily, why did he go back to war? Well, it depends on your point of view. If you had asked Napoleon, he would have said that he was provoked that the different monarchies, particularly Great Britain, never really accepted him and were always looking for excuses to weaken his power, and that his turn to war on the various occasions were responses to hostility and provocation on the part of his enemies. If you were to talk to the British or the Russian Tsar or the Austrian emperor, you'd get a very different story that This is a man with insatiable ambition, with a dream of a European or even worldwide empire, a man who never knew when to stop, who needed to dominate all his opponents. Absolutely. It depends on who you ask. You would really need to get into the weeds of diplomacy and probably even into the minds of powerful individuals like Napoleon and Metternich to really come up with something that we could call objective truth. And I don't think you can ever get there. This question of why the Napoleonic Wars just continued and continued, who was to blame, that's always going to be a subject of debate. In his will, he famously says, I want to be buried in the bosom of the French whom I have so loved. I always think that means he feels himself as an outsider when he talks about the French whom I have so much loved. It feels like he isn't French. It's a strange remark. This is an absolutely new form of government in the 18th century. The 18th century is a time of monarchs who succeed their fathers and sometimes their mothers. It's a time of a handful of republics. But the idea of a more or less self-made charismatic leader taking power, carving out a space for himself and ruling in this way is really quite new in the 18th century. And so when we look at strong men today, we refer back to the Ur model, the original type, which was Napoleon. Just like, for example, when we talk about democracy, we often refer to the Athenians. Napoleon is the first fully fledged version of the strong man to emerge. And that's why probably his name is invoked all the time. 
Peter Hicks told me that the British government was spending somewhere between eight and 12,000 pounds a year. This is more than 200 years ago to ensure that Napoleon would not ever get off that island. And he didn't. He died at the age of 51 from a gastric condition that is assumed to have been either cancer or in more recent years, advanced anemia. In keeping with his modern resonance, there are those who believe, however, the conspiracy theory that Napoleon was poisoned. Peter Hicks is the International Affairs Manager of the Napoleon Foundation, the Fondation Napoleon in Paris. Rafe Blaufarb is Director of the Institute on Napoleon and the French Revolution at Florida State University. Thanks to both of you. Banished is produced by Matthew Schwartz and me, Mike Bolo. Amna Khalid will be back next week.